You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and with me again over Zoom, my co-hostist with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. I sure hope we have a reasonable Zoom link today. Um, been a while since I saw you, and I just as you started, I had a little tinny, tinny sound like you were t- you were talking at the end of a string with a couple of cans tied to them. Uh, it could just be my voice. I had like really bad acid reflux yesterday and it, it burned my throat and now my throat is really sore. I think my acid reflux has made my voice deeper and I try and sing in a in a range that I can't hit anymore as a result of acid reflux. I could have smoked to get the same result. <laughs> anyway, that's my well, problem. Not yours. I hope it doesn't become your problem. No, I just need to get a prescription for it, I think. Yeah. I wonder what's causing it for you suddenly. It's my new medication. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Well, get some medication to deal with that medication, to deal with that medication, and to deal with that medication. It's the way it goes. I'll I'll end up like Denny Crane in Boston Legal in that episode where he sued all the pharmaceutical companies for just inventing diseases and then prescribing him medication for it. Yeah, well, each medication requires some uh, side effect that's got to be dealt with with some new medication. Well, exactly. In fact, side effects are probably like a government conspiracy to just get you to buy more medication. Exactly. It's probably not. Well, yeah, but Joe Biden might put a stop to that. And he might put a stop to it because he's now they're looking at uh, getting rid of the patent protection for the COVID vaccines. This is not the patent law podcast. Can you imagine how boring that podcast is? I was just about to say, shall we discuss patent protection and the downsides and, uh, or shall we talk about some driving law maybe? Let's talk about driving law because I'm already almost asleep from just thinking about patents. Sorry, (laughs) my fault. I apologize. All right. So I wanted to talk to you about a driving law case. This was just a a provincial court trial, but it was a bit Mm -hmm. of an interesting case and a bit of a sort of unique circumstance of dangerous driving. So this is a case involving Hua Feng, or Feng, F-E-N-G, how do you pronounce that? Feng? I would think think Feng, but I don't know. He may have a certain way that he pronounces it. Anyway, do your best. Anyway, Hua Feng. Uh, was charged with dangerous driving. And he pled guilty in the end. And the question was, what sentence should he receive? And, and so this is, you know, you'll know what I want to talk about really when, when I start to tell you the circumstances. So Mr. Feng uh, was driving with his girlfriend and they were having some type of an argument about money and he couldn't get the money that she wanted. And she's like, you're garbage. Why don't you die? And he said, then let's die together. And like something out of a fucking Hollywood movie uh, starts driving erratically, braking, trying to cause a crash, and eventually drove the car into the Fraser River. That's not a good thing to do. No, 
no for sure dangerous driving you know arguably yeah. like attempted murder <laughs> you know uh, well, assault yeah. but mass stupidity yes mass stupidity for sure um <clears throat> and as a result he pled guilty because really there's not much yeah. much you can do with that and the no. you just texted me in the middle of this podcast i want to tell our listeners why i sound so disjointed all of a sudden you asked me if we did this case last week we did not do this case last week uh and we didn't do it the week oh, okay, before okay. either um i wanted to do it the week before this case was published on april 13th um and I wanted to do it the week before, but that was such a big week that we didn't have time to get to it. And then last week, uh, I was telling you about it. Okay, fair enough. We've not done this. Okay, case. sorry. I don't. I know. I all I know is I've heard some of these facts before, but I don't know that we actually discussed it. So anyway. Yeah, no, it was because I was telling you about it and I was telling you about it. I thought this would refresh your memory, but apparently I've just confused you. I was telling you about it because you and I deal with a lot of dangerous driving cases and oftentimes, many, many. many, so many, you were dealing with one yesterday. It's just like a daily, weekly thing. Yeah. You can, I can, I can rattle off all the legal principles just using my fingers to remember them. Not necessarily the case names, but all the legal principles. Anyway, go ahead. So dangerous driving, um, you and I often deal with them. And in circumstances where somebody is found guilty or where there's a plea, we often discuss this question of, of whether or not they should get a conditional discharge. Under the criminal code, dangerous driving does not have a mandatory minimum sentence. So a discharge is an available sentence. And if a person gets a discharge, then they don't get a criminal record as a result of, of the conviction. There's also no automatic driving prohibition under the criminal code for dangerous driving, although there is for, for the Motor Vehicle Act. So it's in people's interest to get a discharge. And oftentimes- And, it, it, and you can get an absolute discharge. I have had cases where my clients were given an absolute discharge in a dangerous driving case. Yeah, there's a great uh, Alberta Court of Appeal case uh, with some somebody who wanted an absolute discharge in a dangerous driving case. And there was no legal error, but the person had like the saddest story ever. And it goes all the way to the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal issues a one paragraph judgment that culminates in them, them saying, this court is the last bus stop on the road to mercy. And I, I love that line. No. I'm glad they feel that way. Yeah. No, I, I do like it. I'm just glad they feel that way. That at least they're going to provide some mercy. I, I, so, uh, I find our courts too conservative. So. On sentence, yeah, I agree. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're you know, I'm post-carceral, so. Yeah, I can see reasons to incarcerate people, but I'm, I'm, I just don't like that. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the justice system these days. Anyway, go ahead. So the Crown in this case wanted six months CSO probation and a year-long driving prohibition. Um, and Mr. Fang said uh, he should get a conditional discharge. Okay. Which, to me, was an odd position to take. 
because all of the case law that's dealt with conditional discharges for dangerous driving cases deals with people who are in really unique circumstances. People who, if they do it intentionally, do it intentionally because of some sort of underlying condition or situation. Like, the, you know, there was a guy who caused a, a collision. It was a dangerous driving cause of death. He caused a collision while he was driving his wife who was in labor to the hospital and he ran a stop sign and happened to run into his best friend who was also driving to the hospital and killed his best friend while his wife is delivering the baby in the car. Like just a crazy situation that would likely never happen again. Not a fight with your girlfriend where you totally overreacted. Yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't sound to me like discharge material. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, yeah. there, there may be more to the story, and I, I don't know why, but like that, that does not lead me to the conclusion that a discharge would necessarily be appropriate. But, you know, I also don't like the idea of a criminal record for it if it's a one-off, uh, you know, and a young person ending up with a criminal record for that, something that's stupid. But, you know, that's my perspective. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I just thought that this case would be a good jumping point for us to talk about circumstances in which discharges have been granted for dangerous driving. Um, you had a recent really good case uh, from the BC Provincial Court um, and circumstances where the courts have been more reluctant to grant discharges. I thought it would be interesting for our legal listeners as well as people who maybe are facing dangerous driving charges themselves. Well, it's an interesting thing because if you get a dangerous driving um, charge in BC and you are found guilty or you plead guilty, even if you get an absolute discharge, there is an automatic driving prohibition under the Motor Vehicle Act for a minimum of one year. And a lot of people don't realize it. A lot of lawyers don't realize it. And they sort of step into it because they go to court and the court does not impose a driving prohibition. And the court can say, yeah, I'm giving you an absolute discharge. That's it. Bye-bye. But then you go home and there's a driving prohibition that starts automatically as a result of the conviction. So that is something that is very important when you're seeking, you know, when, when, you're, when you're asking for the punishment to be considered by the court and you may be seeking a discharge to bring to the court's attention because it is punishment that is coming no matter what. And something that I think the court has to factor in. And each time I've made that argument, of course, the court does factor it in, but Sometimes you have to explain it to them so they understand even an even an absolute discharge is going to trigger the one year driving prohibition. Yes. Um, so when a court goes to impose a discharge, they look at two things. They look at whether the discharge is in uh, in the person's interest, in the accused's interest, which like almost never it's not. I did see a case once where the court found that a discharge was contrary to the interests of the accused because he had like such a long criminal record that it would like not do anything good for him. And I thought, huh, that's an interesting way of looking at it because you'd think maybe it would like make him eligible for a pardon sooner, but okay. Um, and, uh, uh, and then it also has to be shown that a discharge would not be contrary to the public interest. And that's really where these dangerous driving cases tend to fall. In all of the, the dangerous driving cases, it's usually not contrary to the offender's interest. So they look at whether it's contrary to the public interest. And what they look at is the manner of the driving, the length of time over which the driving occurred. There's been cases, lots of cases where the driving occurs over a long period of time. 
and as a result of the length of the dangerous driving, a discharge is not granted. Whether there's drugs or alcohol um, used by the person, that often mitigates against the discharge being in the public interest. Uh, whether uh, the person has a criminal record or a driving record, uh, whether there was some you know, underlying expl explanation. All of these things are- Well, the uh, amount, of, amount of traffic on the roads, the, the danger that it poses to others. I mean, if you cross a double solid line on the Sea to Sky Highway, there's a famous case about it. Um, you, know, that's, you, you can just assume that you're going to likely cause an accident. And most of the time they do. And all you've got between you and that other lane of oncoming traffic and usually people, you know, out for a nice vacation or something like that is two lines. And so your, your onus is high. It's easy to make the mistake, but you know, the, the consequences are, are so potentially devastating that it's a, it's a different situation than, you know, driving down a two lane highway at um, you know a, a speed that's that's too fast or or swerving when there's very few cars around. Yeah, the um, in this case, the defense submitted that the moral culpability of Mr. Feng was not that high, because he was tired and he was distracted and he was in an unfamiliar area, and the judge completely rejects that. They say first of all. He deliberately chose to drive that way rather than like pull over and walk away or, you know, kick his passenger out of the car or whatever. As far as driving while he was exhausted, that was a decision he made. He, he you know, if he was so exhausted that, uh, that he couldn't react appropriately, he shouldn't have gotten behind the wheel in the first place. And finally, even if he wasn't familiar with the area, he was literally on a straight, normal road with good visible barriers and sight lines. So the court characterizes, contrary to defense submissions, the moral blameworthiness of Mr. Fang as being on the very high end of the spectrum. And this ultimately was what, uh, in, in the judge's mind, made this a case where a discharge was contrary to the public interest. The court says, in this regard, this is paragraph 35, Mr. Fang's conduct was serious and his level of moral blameworthiness was high. Notably, it must not be dismissed that Mr. Fang's driving was deliberate, calculated, and performed with the knowledge that his actions would impact Ms. Zhu. Yeah, I mean, it's different when you've got like the intersection. <clears throat> There's a, a famous case where the person goes into the right lane to speed around everybody and the right lane's really a, a turning lane. And then they, you know, they, yeah. And then, um, cause an accident of course but you know that is sort of to gain some slight advantage in traffic which is hardly uh abnormal behavior it just you know in that case was dangerous because it caused an accident yeah, did um, she with a 90-day jail sentence she ended up with a jail sentence i know originally she was not uh, convicted or not uh, sentenced to jail and then it was appealed um and there's i i i had a lot of sympathy for the trial judge's decision in that case um but the uh, you know in this case the guy is setting out to actually to hurt actually somebody. dangerously drive yeah to, to actually pose a risk and hurt somebody and yeah. it's so different than the person who is even you know the exhausted angle i actually accept i don't accept it in this case necessarily because it's, i mean if you're so exhausted that you make that stupid decision, I suppose, I don't know. I don't know how you would make that case. 
but then people are sometimes just so they're, they're, they are impaired by fatigue uh, and make a bad decision, usually a bad decision, again, for an advantage on the road, not to try and hurt somebody. This is an intention to try and hurt himself and his passenger or to terrify her or whatever. I mean, pretty asshole-ish. Mm-hmm. Is that a, is that a word? Asshole-ish? I think it's a word. Yes. Mm. Anyway. It's your podcast. Thought that case uh, was interesting. Thought it was worth talking about. Thought uh, our listeners would be interested to see how dangerous driving can lead to a discharge and also not lead to a discharge. <laughs> and maybe, you well, know, there's like... so much there's so much behavior that can be considered dangerous driving. Running a red light, you could be charged with dangerous driving. Running a red light, you get two lousy demerits. Uh, if you're charged with a, if you get a ticket for it. But if you run a red light and, and um, you know, you end up causing an accident, or even if, you know, the evidence is strong about you running that red light, it'd be a jerk, even for the advantage of it, speeding through it, speeding, blowing through a red light. Um, you know, you can certainly end up uh, charged with danger, convicted of dangerous driving might be a circumstance that a discharge would be appropriate because, you know, we, we prefer not to have be giving people criminal records whenever possible, especially if it's a one-off. But I can imagine somebody blowing through a, a red light or blowing through a stop sign, just thinking, I can make it. Um, and even if they do make it, even if they don't cause an accident, you know, if I were a police officer, I would be, uh, I would, I would be inclined to consider charging somebody in those circumstances. Now, Paul, did you know that this marks the first week of no fault insurance in BC? Oh my goodness, it also marks the first week of roadblocks between districts to keep people from doing touristy travel. Yeah, except lots of firsts. Up until up until Thursday night, and this is Thursday as we're recording this, up until today, uh, or last night, if you're listening to this podcast the day it was released, um, there were no roadblocks. The, the government announced them, and then they took 17 days to actually put them on the road. Well, I was contacted by people who were considering traveling and asking me whether or not they were going to get harassed. And I said, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen until it happens there. Do your best to abide by the, the uh, spirit and intention of the law. But I guess there was no enforcement for over two weeks. Yeah, but case numbers have been consistently going down, which seems to suggest that maybe the announcement effect was having the desired impact. Well, that's the threat. There's an interesting thing looking at the COVID discussion in BC. You know, of course, I monitor it on Twitter or wherever I see it. And there's a lot of people now, journalists who are, are commenting about the things that have, we've been misled about, uh, the things that the government hasn't told us about. Some of the things were outright lies to try and manipulate us. Some of the things were lies in the, you know, not, not necessarily for mischievous purposes but paternalistic reasons like we're going to lie because you know we know what's good for you yeah um and to try and control the population and what we what we um how we think 
and it's pretty disturbing to me to see that. Uh, and here, this was another circumstance where you feel like you've been, you know, it's an attempt at manipulation. Well, isn't everything an attempt at manipulation? I don't know. I don't think so. I try not to manipulate people. I try and, you know, with my clients, I just give them the straight goods. The, um, so uh, it, usually the full explanation I've always found is, is the way of getting to it. Of course, that's not what we do in court ever. No. The full, the full explanation is not something that ever happens in court, which is part of my problem with the justice system. I mean, sometimes as a defense lawyer, your job is to keep the full explanation from going into the evidence. No, but I'm also more than capable of looking at it from the uh, perspective of whether or not it's right or good. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily right or good. Mind you, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Okay, uh, so as you're getting philosophical, I want to get us back on topic, Paul. Which is? Today marks the first week of oh. no fault in BC. And I well, know that was the point. That was the point of my philosophical statement. There's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And well, I think that it's, I think it stinks. <laughs> yeah, it does stink. But you know what stinks more? The blaming the ICBC plaintiff personal injury lawyers for getting us to this point. Pointing the finger at them and saying they're all greedy lawyers trying to get so much money for their clients, which then makes so much money for themselves. And that's what's cost us so much money. I want to tell you about a case. This is the case of Teresa Manhay Moon, who sued Promencio Eduardo Aduan Yaranon. And Miss Moon was involved in a collision in uh, 2015, November 2015. So five and a half years ago. She filed, uh, she was injured. She reported the accident to ICBC. ICBC and, and her, you know, negotiated and tried to come to a settlement. One was never reached. In November 3rd, 2017, roughly two years after the accident, right before her limitation period was up, she filed a notice of civil claim. As you do if you're not able to get ICBC to pay you the money. And the yeah. matter then proceeded through the court. <clears throat> Roughly three years after her notice of civil claim, the matter went to trial. It went to trial October 26th to 30th, 2020, and November 2nd to 6th, 2020. So 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 10 days of trial. Wow. 10 days of trial. And then after trial, there were further written submissions made by both parties who were represented by counsel on November 10th, 13th, and 16th. And judgment was finally released April 30th of this year. That's 10 days of full days court time, plus three days of a judge having to read and consider written submissions for a collision that I'm gonna tell you about, Paul. Miss Moon was- Tell me about it. She was stopped at the intersection of First and Victoria. And it yeah. was 6.30 in the morning. Good spot. She was on her way to work. 
and the defendant at 40 kilometers an hour rear-ended her vehicle, pushed her forward into the vehicle in front of her, and her vehicle was written off. She was able, or sorry, his vehicle was written off. She was able to drive away. She went to work. Liability was admitted because does like she stopped and she's rear-ended. Clearly, she's not at fault. Um, liability is admitted, uh, and ICBC even accepted that she had suffered some injuries. There was no dispute about how she suffered the injuries. They were in the accident. ICBC did not allege that she didn't do anything to mitigate her injuries. These 10 days of trial plus three days of written argument were all over the issue of whether her condition was as bad as she was making out it out to be. This woman is a nurse, so she knows, you know, a lot about medical stuff. Um, she also has a job that's very physically demanding. Yep. And ICBC wasted 10 days of court time to say she's faking the extent of her injuries. We admit she's injured. We admit that it was totally this other driver's fault. We admit that these injuries were caused by the accident, but she's faking how bad they are. It gets worse, Paul. You don't sound How upset. How did it go? For let, me make you, let me make you upset. No, I am upset because all I'm thinking is this is so surprisingly similar to my car accident and I'm in the midst of dealing with ICBC and I've been, I'm so upset that I don't even want to deal with them. Um, oh, but it's mine's two there. years in November and I had all sorts of significant injuries and you were there and I was hit at 50 kilometers an hour. Well, I wasn't there. Anyway. Hit, but yes. No, but you you were there to see my state afterward. Mm, actually, anyway. after you got in the accident, I think I went to Black and Blue and ate a seafood platter. No, you weren't there that day. You saw me for the <laughs> weeks afterward when I... Yes. Well, you didn't yes. see me for a week because I basically was at home. But yes. anyway. Anyway. The months and year and a bit that I suffered. Anyway, go on. If you're not mad, Paul, get madder. Because ICBC... Who's saying she's faking it? Produced no experts who had evaluated Miss Moon to say, you know what, she is faking it. No experts to say this type of injury on this type of person with this type of job would resolve in this type of way. No experts about her financial losses. No experts about nursing as a career and the physical demands of it, nothing. 10 days of trial. Somehow, they only called a single witness, which it boggles my mind. Like, there can't be that many witnesses for the plaintiff, right? Like, some experts who treated her, Miss Moon, uh, her doctor. Like, I, I just can't see how this took 10 days, especially when ICBC has a single witness, I yeah. a physiotherapist who treated her in 2015 and 2016, two months of treatment. His evidence was only 10 minutes long. Yeah. That was the extent of his evidence. Do you know why? How, how does this take 10 days? How does this take 10 days? Um, do, we, no do, you, do you figure it out? Yeah, I, and his evidence- Screw you, had, taxpayer. His evidence was literally, I don't remember <laughs> treating her. Mm. I do not remember this person. That's, that's 
the entirety of this person's evidence. ICBC's entire case that she was faking her injuries was based on a physiotherapist going, I don't actually remember anything. Good case. So how the, I, I, I'm still at a loss for how this takes 10 days, but where does it go in the end? If ICBC is not calling any witnesses and ICBC's only thing is to basically, I suppose, cross-examine her and when she's on the witness stand, say, you're faking it, right? And her going, nope. Yeah, well. How does it go to 10 days and what's the result? I don't know, because according to the judgment, there was very minimal cross-examination. So I guess it was 10 days of her putting forward all the evidence of all her injuries and ICBC's lawyers like going, okay, I don't know. Um, paragraph six, I'm gonna read this to you. Of course, it is the defendant, ICBC's, right to force the plaintiff to prove her case and the defendant is not required to adduce any evidence at all. One may question whether the provincial insurer is penny wise and pound foolish by advancing such a strategy in the face of a $1.7 million claim, which cost will ultimately borne by British Columbians if the plaintiff is successful. But I reiterate that such a strategy makes the task of the court exceedingly difficult and undermines its truth finding function. So let's go back to why does ICBC have to switch to a no-fault model? Why is there a dumpster fire? Those darn personal injury lawyers just trying to get so much money with these frivolous cases and, you know, exaggerated claims. And then you have poor Miss Moon, who wants, you know, a reasonable $1.7 million for lifelong impacts to her ability to practice nursing, a profession where people are quite rightly paid a lot of money. Well, it's also hard. It's hard on your body. It's a hard job to do. Oh. And it's not the type of thing you can do if you've got some physical injury that's holding you back. And yeah. it's a, also a job that you, you train for for a long time with yeah. the intention of being able to work in that career for the course of your life. And you, you, you give up a lot to be a nurse. You know, you're, the expectations on you are very high. It's, a, it's not an easy job by any means it's a particularly hard job anywho yeah and this was somebody who was also like very very driven um she's a, a parent uh she does you know triathlons and cycling races and finishing in the top 10 percent for her age and sex prior to the prior to the incident um oh my goodness that's tragic i know i know she would go like on her lunch break for runs while working this physically demanding job. She got her- Well, that's, in, that's insane. That's insane though. That's a strong- got, It is insane. Um, she got her BSc in genetics and cell biology. She did her, then she did her BSc in nursing and she was hired in the subacute medicine department in a full-time permanent position at St. Paul's Hospital. And then on top of her full-time stuff, whenever she could, she picked up nursing shifts for overtime and then also worked part-time at an infusion and injection clinic and taught clinical nursing at UBC. And she sounds like your equivalent in nursing. Maybe, minus the running, because <laughs> I don't run. Well, you're running in other ways. Yeah, sure. You're running all day long. Like day. when my heart rate 
goes every up. Day is, every day is a marathon for you. When my heart rate goes up 30 yeah. beats per minute from, from standing up from my chair, I count that as running. <laughs> That's your problem. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So ICBC gets berated and there's a settlement. And obviously, you know, she's found that she can substantiate the injury she suffered. Yeah, I mean, they, the judge doesn't accept the entire amount that she's claiming, the $1.7 million. She ends up getting a million bucks, um, basically. Uh, but more, more significantly, the court had to spend all of this time, all of this time dealing with this. She got significantly less than what she was seeking, almost half of what she was, or a little yeah. more than half of what she was seeking. 10 days of court time. I bet if ICDC had offered her a million bucks, she would have taken it. I would. Well, we're speculating. Maybe she didn't. You know, people persuade themselves of all sorts of things. Maybe, um, maybe she you know, wouldn't she have. May have like uh, she may have felt so passionately about her 1.7 million that she felt that it was necessary to do it. And of course, the courts have been quite critical of ICBC running these things that they think should have been settled that you know they may have persuaded themselves that they had no choice but of course you know what I know that it's probably more likely that ICBC offered her four hundred thousand dollars or something like that yeah um when she was seeking that and they probably could have come to something the, the um, is that they wasted it's unfortunate you know I I, I well there's there's all this slagging of lawyers, but it's always, you know, there's ICBC lawyers who are as involved in this as anybody else. And you're a very efficient lawyer. It takes a long time for you to run some of the trials that you run, but you're also very efficient. You use that time effectively. I think a lot of the time lawyers who are not running as many trials don't use that time as effectively. I know early in your career, judges used to uh, used to give you a bit of a rough ride for the amount of time that it was going to take for your trials. A few years in, they all realized that you were exploring every issue that mattered. And so, you know, it was clear that you're not actually efficient. It's always the case if you're a lawyer who's not running trials often. Yeah. You don't necessarily have that experience. Yeah, well, now when I go into court and the Crown and, and me are arguing over the time estimate and I'm like, nope, this is a three-day trial. And the Crown's like, it's a two-hour trial. The judges are usually like, if Miss Lee says it's three days, it's going to be three days. Well, they recognize the fact that it's going to take some time because you're going to explore every issue. Yep. And I appreciate that. But yeah, um, you know, as I a review. What? Go ahead. I, I once had a crown say, well, you know, my experience is that counsel, you know, plead a lot of stuff in their charter notice and then focus it when it comes time for trial. <laughs> and the judge started laughing because that is not my practice. Well, a lot of the times you plead everything that you can find in the face of the police report and then half the time the trial starts and you find three more things. So I make, three, three. <laughs> I make them happen. Well, no, I mean, you get, you draw the evidence out of them, but sometimes you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. You see it and then you get it out. That's a marvelous thing to watch. The, um, I noticed you tweeted, a, you tweeted a, a thing of somebody's ranking of the top litigators in the country. Uh, and it was all, uh, 
uh, white males for the most part in their in their 50s and 60s -hmm. and uh, I just imagined you know any one of those people being up against you when it came comes to cross-examination I would be mightily surprised if uh, if they had your skills well, thank you. Anyway, very nice of you. Um, it's amazing anyway. to watch, but you and I also do a lot of training in that. So, true. So, ICBC, I continue to say that the court is making it clear and proving that ICBC is to blame for this freaking dumpster fire. And um, I have no sympathy for them. You know who I also don't have sympathy for, Paul? Oh, who is it? The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Awesome. I can hear you typing. You must be pulling it up. You email it to yourself or something? I did because it's really freaking funny. Okay. So this is... is a a state senator in Ohio. And Ohio, and uh, Tim Huey, if you're listening, this is an important message for you because I have ridden in the car with you in the past. (laughs) Ohio has uh, recently considered and is considering a distracted driving bill. Uh Aha, so there's a state senator who's backing the bill? There are, well, there's lots of state senators who are backing the bill, but while debates were going on about this distracted driving legislation, um, one of the senators whose Zoom screen made it look like he was sitting in his living room, there was like, a you know, a leather chair and a set of stairs and a wall with pictures on it and his TV cabinet, appeared to be wearing a seatbelt. Ah, yes, he needs to have a green seatbelt on. I don't know that he'd have a green, that he'd be sitting, he'd have a green chair going through the middle of his body. So, um, so he was driving, huh? He had a Zoom background on and he was driving, he was distracted driving while debating the distracted driving bill and attempting to hide it with a Zoom background, even though it was so obvious because he was wearing his fucking seatbelt. Well, years ago, I thought of when seatbelt legislation came in in Alberta, of course, the seatbelt legislation had been in BC for a long time. I thought of selling t-shirts that made it look like you were wearing your seatbelt. So maybe he could be wearing the the t-shirt I conceived of. What an idiot. Yeah, that's got to be. What a fucking moron, eh? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So is he a member of like the state legislature or something? Yes. Yes, he's a state senator. Or is well, do they call them senators? I don't know what they call them. I mean, the senators yeah. are for the Senate, the U.S. No, Senate. But they, I don't know. Maybe have... in Ohio, they if you're a legislator, you're a senator for Ohio. States have senators too. But Paul. it's a it's it's it's. I don't know. I don't know their terminology. I'm not from America. My family's from America, but I'm not from America. Anyway, the um, that's not a very uh, not a good ploy, and he's probably going to make the legislation that much easier to pass. I wonder how he felt about it. Was he in support of the legislation, or was he just speaking to it, or was he just happened to be on the Zoom? 
he happened to be on the Zoom. I mean, I don't think it really matters whether he's in support or not. It's just not the right time to do that. The optics of it are bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the optics of anybody who's in government driving and using their phone is bad. Driving and using your phone on Zoom, we've seen this a couple of times, is bad. Driving and using your phone on Zoom while you're debating and you're using a fake background and you're debating uh, legislation with respect to distracted driving, that certainly constitutes the ridiculous driver of the week. Absolutely. There should be an annual award for the most ridiculous driver of the year, but then we'd have to keep track. Yes. Anyway, that's our podcast. No, thanks. Well, I apologize for these long delays in between you saying something and me saying something. I'm just making sure that the Zoom has caught everything because for whatever reason, I don't have the best internet connection today. I assume it's at my end. It is at your end because I can hear you sort of cutting out occasionally. Hmm. Okay. I accept that. Yeah. Thanks, Kyla. Well, and talk if you, to you next week, maybe. Yes. And if you have a driving law related issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.